Well, good morning, church. Once again, I am humbled and uh, um, joyful to have this great privilege to bring the Word of God to you. Um, So join me in prayer as we ask for God's guidance and God's help once again. Our Father and our God, we are very thankful that we have this privilege, this great honor of having your word, being able to look in it and find the treasures, the treasures of salvation, the treasures brought to us by your spirit in Jesus Christ. We ask now that you remove all distractions, that you would help a weak man as I am to deliver this word unto edification to the saints, glory to Christ and salvation to sinners. We thank you and ask again in Jesus' name, amen. So I want you all to start by turning in the book of Hebrews, turn to chapter 12, epistle to the Hebrews chapter 12, and in verse 1, we read, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangle us, and let us run with endurance the race they set before us. Now, in this passage, the author of Hebrews, and if you have paid attention last week, as Kurt has begun, has started a new series in this epistle, the author, which we don't know who he is, um, there's speculation, there's good speculation, some would say uh, even the Apostle Paul, uh, and if you haven't listened to that message, I would uh, encourage you to do so, it's on Sermon Audio. Um, Yeah, the author of this epistle is basically calling all of his readers, all of... um, all of uh, uh, Christian readers, all of us, really, to faithfully continue in the Christian walk, to, uh, to press on. He's encouraging his readers to press on in the Christian walk, in the, the pilgrimage, the, the journey of faith. And friends, um, if you are in any way like me, and I suspect that you are, you know that this walk of faith is not an easy one at times. It's very challenging. At times, it's very hard to continue with endurance in this walk of faith. There is challenges, um, I say, from within and from without. From within, because we still, although we are redeemed, we are uh, people with a new nature given by the Spirit of God, yet we still have uh, a sinful nature within us. We still struggle with our sinful flesh, and that presents challenges in persevering in this walk of faith. Um, sometimes we are pulled and tempted by the world and, and we fall and we sin and um, we feel guilty. And sometimes instead of running to Christ, we run the opposite way. So this walk is not easy. Sometimes, like I said, it's from without. Um, the world tempts us. Uh, men, we live really in a place, in a society where it's just really, really hard not to uh, be tempted, particularly with lust. Uh, It's thrown in our faces left and right everywhere nowadays. And women, I suspect that you undergo the same temptations and struggles, although I haven't experienced yours. Um, So this walk of faith is a hard one at times. And if you agree with me, if you identify with this struggle sometimes, then I would suggest that you pay close attention to the next words in Hebrews 12. Now there, the apostle, uh, I say apostle, although we don't know if it necessarily was an apostle, but it is an apostolic authority. There he mentions how this can be done, how we can walk with endurance this, uh, we can run with endurance this race. 
Now he provides us with really the method, the, the, the chief avenue, the best weapon we can ever employ in this race to cross the finish line victorious. And that is verse two. Well, he says, let us run with endurance the race they set before us. Verse two, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. So this is our verse for today. This is where we're going to be focused on today. And um, I see some visitors, but I know that uh, primarily we have members here. And you, you know, you're aware at Grace Bible Church, we have a wonderful, healthy practice of, um, of expounding the text. Uh, that's what's generally called expository preaching. That basically means... Uh, that what we do, we unpack, um, we open up uh, a verse in its context, in its original meaning. And I want you to understand that that is the best way um, to understand and to profit from God's, word, from God's word. It is a great blessing, and we ought to be thankful to God primarily and to our pastors and elders for being committed to expository preaching. But after having said that, today we're going to be doing something a little different. Uh, today, I won't be expounding this verse. After all, Kurt has started a, a series in Hebrews. He will eventually get to chapter 12. I leave to his expertise. I leave to his experience, uh, the exposition of this particular verse. But what I want to do today, I want to, I want to do our verse. I want to take these words in, uh, in Hebrews 12 and literally apply them to our service. I want us to fix our eyes on Jesus. So put it in a very simple way, today's sermon, the topic, the aim, the goal, uh, the heart of the sermon is going to be Jesus Christ. You're welcome. <laughs> now don't get me wrong, when I say this, I don't mean that uh, expository preaching, the regular practice of expository preaching doesn't focus on Christ. Indeed it does, I'm just trying to make a more pointed effort to look at Christ as the apostle tells us to, to fix our eyes on him and really to see how can we do that? How do we fix our eyes on Christ? And this is really not, I'm not coming up with something new. This is no novelty. The, the, the art of preaching uh, has always been and always will be to preach Christ. Um, many of you know that I am an intern here at Grace Bible Church and I've I've um, been a student for a while at, um, at uh, Reformed Baptist Seminary, and uh, if there's one thing that all of my teachers, and especially my, my pastors, um, have taught me and agree on, is preach Christ. Preach Christ. And they didn't come up with this themselves either. This is something that has been the practice of the church since the very inception of the church. For example, Paul, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians in the first epistle to the Corinthian church. And when it came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to do nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was determined to know nothing except the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. Again, he says to the same church in 2 Corinthians 4, for what we proclaim, we as the apostles, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And if we go down the history of the Christian church, faithful preacher after faithful preacher have always employed the same practice, preach Christ. 
And one of our beloved uh, preachers, most beloved, the, the, is known as the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, 19th century English preacher, um, even summed up his, uh, his ministry this way. And many know that he was a preacher because he preached thousands and thousands of sermons, a very prolific pastor, but he was, he was also a teacher. He, he taught in a seminary and he was he sought to raise godly men for the preaching of the word of God. And this is his advice to them. Of all I would wish to say, this is the sum. So of all of the experience that Charles Spurgeon has on preaching, this is the summary of it. My brethren, preach Christ always and evermore. So today we're going to be looking at Jesus Christ. We're going to be trying to gain fresh a fresh look, fresh eyes, a new glimpse of him who, as uh, Colin said, is worthy of all our adoration and praise. And because if we do want to run this race with endurance, if we do want to press on in the Christian life, this is absolutely necessary. This is, this is what we have to do to fix our eyes on Christ. So at this point, the question is, how do we do it? How do we fix our eyes on Christ? Uh, how do we properly meditate on Jesus. And friends, I submit to you that um, there's many ways, there's many aspects, facets, angles of Christ that we can, we can, fa- we can focus on, we can fix our, fix our eyes on. And it is because the more something, uh, the more something is, is grand, the more something is, um, is majestic, it's glorious, um, the more ways there are to meditate upon it, to look at it, to, to behold it. Just, for example, think of the universe. If I would have to instruct you now to ponder space, to, to meditate on the universe. Now, some of you might just already be thinking about the overwhelming size of it. Now, I am no expert in any way, shape, or form, but um, to go from point A to point B can take thousands of, uh, of light-speed years. So the size is amazing. Or some of you might be thinking about... Uh, um, the power contained in the universe, uh, all the stars and the inc- incredible amount of, of energy and power. Some might be thinking about the fascinating presence of planets or um, even the beauty of galaxies and constellations. Um, some might even think of the mysteries of black holes. The point is this. The point is that the more something is glorious, is, is vast and majestic, the more ways and avenues to behold it there are. So, what about the maker of the universe? What about the one who actually made the universe? For the Bible says, For by him, that is Christ, for by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So, so what about the maker of the universe? How many avenues, how many, um, like a diamond has many faces, how many ways there are to gaze upon the glory of Christ? But I, I somehow think that we limit ourselves when we, when we do this, because I know that the healthy practice, that you know that the healthy practice of the Christian life is to meditate and behold Christ, yet I think that we limit ourselves Sometimes, somehow, in doing that. Um, and what I mean by that is that generally, when we think of the person of Christ, we all think in terms of Son of God, Messiah, Savior, King. 
These are the things that we generally gravitate around, but there is so many other titles. There is so many other ways to look at the person of Christ that are sometimes neglected. They are sometimes overlooked by us. And I, I, I know that this, these titles, these aspects, would help us love him more, understand our Savior more, and we would definitely profit in our walks of faith. And the New Testament really has dozens of titles and adjectives uh, attributed to Christ that many times we just read over without the proper, the due observation. Um, and it is a healthy and good practice to find them, to stop, to pull that out of the scriptures, as, uh, as Kurt loves to say, as little nuggets of gold, and to profit from them. So this is what we're going to be doing today. We're going to explore uh, three of these quote-unquote neglected titles, neglected titles that I think are profoundly relevant for the Christian life, for the Christian walk, and even for the situation, the circumstances we're in nowadays in, in, the, in the world we live in. So without further ado, let's turn to our first one. Number one, Jesus is called in the New Testament, the consolation of Israel. Jesus is the consolation of Israel. Now, I don't know how often have you thought of Christ as the consolation of Israel. Is this something that you perhaps have neglected? Do you even know where he's called the consolation of Israel? Well, turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Some of you might have known that already. Gospel Luke chapter 2, and in verse 25 you read, now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, this is a messianic title. This is a very common uh, Old Testament Jewish messianic title. We know that from rabbinical writings. We know that from the scriptures themselves. The Jews um, used to refer to the coming, the promised Messiah as the, the consolation, the comfort, the comfort of God. And even the scriptures that we have read, the, the Old Testament scripture in Isaiah 40 draws this parallel between the, the comfort coming from God and the coming of, of Messiah. The, the chapter 40 begins, comfort, comfort my people. And then it goes into a very messianic promise um, in that very chapter. So surely enough, Luke 2 reveals that this hope of Simeon, this, this waiting eagerly and patiently for the consolation of Israel, gets satisfied. He gets fulfilled by the appearance of a little baby. There's a, a little child that's brought to the temple by his parents for the ceremonial offerings. These were prescribed by the, the, the Mosaic law. And this child is Jesus. And um, Simeon, after seeing him, uh, Luke goes on and says, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So Jesus Christ is none other than the long-awaited consolation of Israel. Now, just a couple of observations, a couple of questions regarding this, uh, this title. First of all, why consolation? Like, who, who needed to be consoled? Why would, why would such a godly man, Simeon, he's described as a, a righteous and devout man, 
um, quite, a, quite a high honor to be recording scriptures as a righteous and devout man. Why was he awaiting for consolation? Well, if we think of, uh, even just briefly, of, of the history of the nation of Israel, we, we, we recognize that it is hard to imagine. It is hard to, to imagine a people, a nation that has gone under, that has endured more suffering than the nation of Israel. You know, they have been enslaved, they've been exiled, they've been oppressed, they've been persecuted, they've been conquered, they have uh, undergone uh, uh, famines, uh, long journeys in the desert, um, all sorts of evils. Uh, so this was a people that was in great need of consolation. Now granted, because of their own sin and the sin of others, there's a combination there that it's hard to point out if it's more because of their sin or more of the sin of others, but they were in great need of being comforted, being consoled, um, and not that kind of consolation, it's worldly, but a meaningful and lasting consolation that only God himself would bring. But one of the things we notice from this passage is that it is, it is the godly, it is the righteous, it is the devout that are keenly aware of this need of consolation. So, Brethren, if you recognize, if you understand that you are in need to be comforted by God, if you are grieving from one reason or the other, that is not something we ought to shy away from. That is something that the godly recognizes. The wicked, uh, the wicked as has always been since the days of Noah, they go about marrying and being married drinking and and having their feasts they do not recognize the need of comfort from god somehow they find comfort either in a bottle or in a pill or whatever worldly methods they employ it is um it is god's people who seeks and finds comfort in jesus and uh, notice one other thing in the text that jesus is not called the consolation of the world He's called the consolation of Israel. He is the comfort of, of God for the suffering people of God. Now that leads us to another question then, which is our second question, which is, now this, does this title um, have anything to do with us? Do we draw any consolation, any comfort from, from this, this Messiah or is it just for a particular nation? And I thought, how to answer this question, and but then I realized when I read John Gill that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do it any better than he did. So I'll just, I'll just read you his answer, John Gill, uh, in his commentary in this passage. He says, uh, as, as um, the consolation of Israel, he says, this is not to be understood um, of the whole Jewish nation, for he was not to be a comfort to them that through their corruption and wickedness he came not to send peace but a sword. To those who through their unbelief and rejection of him, wrath came upon them to the uttermost. But consolation of the true and spiritual Israel of God, whom he has chosen, redeemed, and calls, whether of, of Jews or Gentiles, his own special and peculiar people, the heirs of promise, and who are often mourners in Zion. You see, the nation of Israel was but the church of the Old Testament, a seed that would then blossom in the new covenant in the church. Israel is a type, as we often call, as we often refer to um, typology, so to the study of types in the Old Testament. Well, Israel was a very clear type, a representation, a prefiguration of the people of God 
in the New Testament, the church. So true and fulfilled Israel is the spiritual nation of those not circumcised in the flesh, but those circumcised at heart, those born again, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether Jews or Gentiles, those who believe in Christ. So in other words, Jesus is our consolation. Jesus is our comfort. You see, when we are mourning, when we're grieving, when we're discouraged, when we are disheartened, Jesus is your consolation. He's your divine comfort. So how does this title help us run the race with endurance? Well, I would say two primary ways. One, Jesus is comfort for us when we mourn over our own sin. And as Christians, I believe that before we mourn about everything else in the world, we ought to mourn about our own sin. We ought to look long and hard on ourselves and how we conduct our lives. And uh, uh, as the Puritans used to say, is that the more we are sanctified, the more we perceive our sinfulness. So Jesus is comfort when we mourn over our own sin. Why? Because we ought to grieve no more because our sins have been paid in full. Because he on the cross has bore all of the wrath of God on our behalf. Because he has done it by his work, by his resurrection. That's why it's great comfort. He has washed us clean by his blood. There's an old Lutheran hymn, and um, this is not an endorsement to uh, Lutheran theology. Uh, I don't know where the denomination is is headed nowadays, but this is a good uh, um, portion of an old Lutheran hymn. It says, When over sin I sorrow, Lord Christ, I look to you. For from you I comfort borrow, that your death my death slew. So Christ is great comfort when we mourn over our own sin. And secondly, he's comfort when we mourn over the sin of others. I know that you're all aware of what has happened even just um, a few hundred miles north this week. On Wednesday, there was another mass shooting. And and sadly, that seems to be a pattern um, nowadays. It's almost like a weekly occurrence that we're getting accustomed to. Well, that is reason of great grieving and great mourning. Um, you all know that since Roe v. Wade in this country, uh, through the wicked practice of abortion, 60 million plus children have been slaughtered. That, that is reason for great mourning. Great grieving. If you even just turn on the news uh, on any given day, there's plenty, ample reason to grieve and to mourn. And even if you just don't even turn on the news, but in your own life, um, there might be a family member that is reason for you to grieve. There might be something that's going on with their salvation or um, your husband has done something that makes you mourn or your, your children are, are not in Christ. This can be all reasons to to mourn. Well, in Christ, we find comfort. We find consolation. Why? Many reasons. Because first of all, he's in control of all things. Secondly, because in him, there is justice and restoration. You see, all these evil things that we see that bring us mourning and grieving, well, Christ will bring justice on that great day. Jesus is a savior who sympathizes with sinners. Uh, He has been tempted in every way, yet without sin. So in him and in him alone, we can make sense of otherwise a senseless evil. You know, I talked to a lot of atheists at the park, at Balboa Park, and uh, 
they have no explanation really for the, the evil of the world. It's senseless to them. Well, in Christ, we can find comfort because only in him uh, we find sense. We make, can make sense to these things. So Jesus Christ is the consolation of Israel. He is our comfort, our consolation. Now, our second title, Jesus in the New Testament is called the end of the law. Turn to Romans 10. Jesus is called the end of the law. Romans 10, uh, verse 4, we read, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Now, there's a remarkably common mistake um, when it comes to people's understanding of Christianity. Uh, now, we get this all the time, again, at Babua Park. Unbelievers, and sadly, even a lot of professing believers, they perceive Christianity to be a religion of, of rules and laws, a religion of do's and don'ts. Um, matter of fact, those of you who have come to Balboa Park in the last few years know that right next to our evangelism booth, there's another booth um, that is a group of atheists. And one of the things that these men and women, is very religious men and women, by the way, they're very pious when it comes to their beliefs. Um, one of the things, one of the things that they have made the chief tenet of their, of their theology, one of the chief tenets of their beliefs is um, an idea of liberation, uh, liberation from this um, uh, oppression of the law. Uh, they proclaim, they preach that atheism would free you from these restrictions of Christianity. And friends, the misuse and the misunderstanding of the law has been and will always be um, the downfall of many, the stumbling block of many. That's why I'm very thankful that it's one of the topics that we cover um, amply here at Grace Bible Church, especially in men's studies, men's breakfast, the balance, the understanding of, of the law and the gospel, because that is such a stumbling block to so many, a misunderstanding of the law. Why? Because, of course, the Bible has um, a lot to say about laws and regulations. Um, the Bible speaks a great length of divine law. Matter of fact, great parts of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the first five books, uh, those known as the books of Moses, those are, those are largely dedicated to laws and precepts and regulations. Um, but it is the role that it plays, the scope, the goal, the end of this law that is missed by so many today and really at Paul's time. Because in fact, what Paul is doing in, in, in this passage in Romans 10 is pointing out exactly that. The apostle is heartbroken over his own people, uh, their ignorance and misunderstanding of the law. Let's read it together. Verse 1 in chapter 10 in Romans. Paul says, uh, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God in seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the Jews of Paul's time, just like hundreds, thousands of people in our times, they were seeking to establish their own righteousness by obeying the law. They were very zealous. How does Paul know that? Well, he was one of them. 
he, we know from his uh, small autobiographies throughout the, the New Testament that he was, he was very zealous, that he was, uh, he was seeking to establish this righteousness through just strict obedience to the law. Uh, not just a mosaic law, but even additions that they just added in there, I guess, for fun. I don't know why they added so many extra laws. Um, well, we do know why. But, um, now, this, this becomes a burden. This becomes a yoke that is unbearable. It's unbearable for anybody. Matter of fact, this burden, which is a, a burden of a misapplied law, a misunderstood law, really fuels the fire of atheism. This gives the reason to, for the atheist to preach this liberation from the law. It's really a misunderstanding of the law. Because, um, as William Anderson says, commenting on this passage, he says, does anyone wish to understand the meaning and substance of the Old Testament law? Then study Christ. You see, if you want to know the meaning, the place, the purpose, if you want to understand the law, look no further than Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the end of the law. He is the fulfillment. He is the goal. He is the fulfillment of the law, as Paul says. You see, the law of God, which has multiple uh, functions, as primarily the functions was intended primarily to be a pointer, to be a ve- really a vehicle to carry sinners to the Messiah, to pick them up in their state of sin and carry them to the Savior. Uh, uh, the law really was a mirror, a mirror of righteousness, uh, revealing two things primarily, both men's sinfulness uh, compared to God's perfect standard and men's need of a savior, need of a perfect and righteous savior. And friends, the truth is that righteousness can be ob- obtained in two ways. Righteousness can be obtained in two ways. It can be earned or it can be received. Now, before you fall off your chairs or your pews, uh, it can be earned, how? Through perfect, immaculate, perpetual obedience to the law. Okay? Now, we all know that that is unobtainable. That is, uh, that is a path that's it's impossible for sinners. Then just another path remains. It is to be received. Righteousness can be received by faith in the perfect, immaculate lawkeeper. And that is Christ. That's how the law points us to Christ. And that's how Jesus is the end of the law. Basically, this verse is kind of like uh, Christianity in a nutshell. Uh, if they would, they would have a book, uh, well, they probably do, but it, um, Christianity for Dummies. Uh, this, this verse would be it. Because this is what separates um, God's religion from all man-made systems. We don't go about seeking to establish our own righteousness by obedience to the law. No, we are righteous by virtue of Jesus Christ. So how does this title help us run the race with endurance? Well, I find a great relief, um, and I trust you do too, I find great relief in knowing that Jesus is the goal of the law. Uh, Isn't this, when you read Pilgrim's Progress, isn't this, the very truth that lifts the burden off of Christians' back. Isn't the truth that Jesus is the end of the law, that you don't have to establish your own righteousness through perfect obedience, but Christ, that law points you to Christ, that lifts Christians' burden from his back. 
Now, does it lift your burden? Doesn't it lift your burden too? And if, if there is any here who is still seeking to establish their own goodness, their own righteousness, if there's any here who's still seeking to be accepted by God through their good deeds, I would appeal to you not to be so foolish, not to be so, so prideful, really, but to lay down such a heavy burden. It is an unbearable burden to lay it down. This is the burden of Islam. This is the burden of Rome. This is the burden of Mormonism, um, all sorts of cults. This is their burden. The burden of Christ is light. His yoke is easy. So turn to Christ, for he is the end of the law. Our third and last um, title. Jesus is called in the New Testament, our peace. Jesus called our peace. So you can turn to the epistle um, to the Ephesians. Now this perhaps is not as neglected as the previous two. You know, we're not so used to call Jesus the constellation of Israel. Uh, we might not focus so much in the fact that he is the end of the law. Um, but uh, it, many people embrace the idea that Jesus is our peace. But primarily, generally this is reserved to uh, and, and understood as Jesus being our peace with God. But Undeniably, Jesus is our peace with God, and yes and amen. But in this passage in Ephesians 2, Jesus is our peace in reference to one another. He's the peace between men. He's the peace between races. Let's look at uh, Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, but what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now that's the situation of of Gentiles, unbelievers. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And here it is, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, expressing ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, this was a description of the old world system. In the old world, the world of Jesus, the world of Paul, the world of first century Asia Minor, it existed no, really no greater division, no greater hostility and separation than the one between Jews and Gentiles. The one called, the Jews called the Gentiles um, dogs, unclean. And, and really the Gentiles had um, very low uh, consideration, estimation of the Jews either. They, they basically consider them accursed and foolish people. Yeah, as we read, Jesus obliterates, literally obliterates this division. He could be, he could be called the wall destroyer. I know some of you brothers like to call him the, the, uh, the serpent crusher. He's also the wall destroyer. Uh, He tears down this wall of division and hostility. 
the Christian church is truly the only place on earth where no distinction, no division based on, on race, color, power, ethnicity, um, economical, economic level uh, exists. Why? It's because Jesus has basically leveled the field. Uh, Jesus has abolished in his flesh any division, any and each of these divisions are part of the system, the fallen system of Satan. Um, but Christ, who is our peace, in him there is no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free, no male, nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, do we realize the, the application of this? Do we realize um, the extent and depth of this doctrine? Even today, we see how even our own nation, um, even our own city is marred by division, is marred by hostility and hatred. Um, it's, it's the order of the day. And I don't know how many of you, and I, I think very, uh, very little of you watch CNN, um, but that's your own business. The, the, the thing is that if you, if you watch CNN, all they talk about is this vision and this hostility. And now, they might exploit that for their own purposes, and I'm, I'm no huge fan, but I don't want to get into this. Um, there's some truth to that. There is hostility. There is division um, based on all sorts of different reasons, even in our own country. Yet the world has no solution. You know, CNN loves to talk about it, but they have no solution. Uh, the world might be aware of the problem, but they present no solution. And why? Because this is not fundamentally a, um, a social problem. This is not something that can be fixed with uh, any social programs, with subsidized health care or schooling. That can't be fixed by, by that. It is not a, an economic problem. It can't be fixed by uh, low unemployment rates, a booming economy, and... and uh, and just um, a free market or all sorts of things like that. It's not a, a political problem. It can't be solved by, um, by new laws, by legislation. Uh, no gun control will fix it. No identity politics will fix it. Why? Because it is a sin problem. This is a spiritual problem and only the prince of peace himself can fix it. He can bring meaningful and lasting unity through the renewal of people's hearts, through the regeneration brought by the Holy Spirit. And that's why the church is the only place where truly there is unity because Christ has tore down this wall. The world has no solution, but the church does. The church has the remedy. Jesus Christ is our peace. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that brings true and uh, it is the only message um, of unity and harmony that mankind needs. So if there's any healing that can come to our city, our nation, our neighborhoods, our families, has to be through the preaching of the gospel. Has to be through the preaching of the gospel. So the church must rise and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only solution to this division. But before we preach the gospel through the dying world, we ought to preach the gospel to ourselves. Brethren, you have to preach the gospel to yourself. Is there any hostility that you have within, that we have within each other? Is there any hostility within your family, husbands, wives, uh, 
fathers uh, with their sons or daughters? Is there any hostility between brothers and sisters? Well, Jesus Christ is your peace. He tore down that wall of, of, uh, of division, that hostility, and he reconciled us to God in one body through the cross. So to conclude today, we've started with the words of Hebrews 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And my friends, if we do want to run the race with endurance, if we do want to continue steadfast in the Christian walk, and I suspect that that is your desire, this is the way, this is the method uh, this is uh, the prescription of the Bible to fix your eyes on Christ. So we have sought to do this very command. We have uh, took a few examples of how to look to Christ, to consider him afresh, to apply the things that we behold to our circumstances. So my hope, my prayer is that we grow to, uh, to be a people, a church to um, loves to meditate on Christ, who learns how to meditate better on Christ. And we become a church that's focused on Christ sharply uh, for his glory. And I just want to leave you with uh, the words of John Calvin. He says, There is no other way of being truly wise than by fixing all our thoughts on Christ alone. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we are thankful that your word points clearly to Christ. The law points to Christ. All things leave us with the sense of need of the Savior accomplishing all things for us. Help us be those who are sharply focused on them. Help us be those who benefit for our walks by beholding Christ. We do pray that, he, pray that he will be glorified in our lives, in the conduct of our lives, in um, the unity of this church, and that we might be lights to this world, those who preach the good news of unity through Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.